Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. Think Like an Owner has teamed up with the podcast app Clever FM to provide show-specific features like searchability, sorting episodes by tags, episode transcripts, and the ability to highlight and annotate episodes. Do us a favor and download Clever FM on Apple or Android and tell us what you think and what other features you'd like to see. My guest on this episode is Ryan DeCare. Ryan joined a private equity firm called Ashbridge Partners in Toronto, Canada, and became president of one of their portfolio companies, Geraline, in February 2019. Geraline is an industrial safety products company that sells ice cleats to companies in the energy, aerospace, mining, transportation, and construction industries, among others. Geraline is a pretty incredible growth story. From the time of acquisition in February 2019, when it had low double digits revenue, Ryan and his team doubled the size of Geraline and sold for a 10x gross return to investors only 16 months later. The story of how they did it, with sweat and tears, 
will have a familiar theme to anyone in a growing small company. Ryan and I discuss building systems in a growing business, hiring for culture, creating an incentive structure for their team, going to 55 trade shows per year and all the work needed to handle those leads, and the challenges of being a business with only one or a small handful of products. Well, thanks, Ryan, for coming on the podcast. It's exciting to chat with you. Looking forward to chatting about Jerryline. Can you start with a little bit with your background and your brothers and what you guys have done so far and a little bit maybe the work you're doing together now? Of course. Thanks for having me. It's cool to be on with you. So my background and my brother and I now are our partners in our investment firm, 3GP Capital. The two seconds on 3GP Capital is we're investing our own capital and then some strategic investors that are behind us where it makes sense. We're investing across the capital structure. We've we've invested in search funds. We've backed searchers. We've led startup financings, but I would say our nine to five, our, our kind of day-to-day is looking to own and operate lower middle market businesses generally and call it the two to 10 million of EBITDA range. That's where we're focused. We're brothers and business partners, which is a lot of fun. But we grew up in a small town in, a, in about an hour or so outside of Toronto, call it like 2,600 people. And from there, I, I went into investment banking and private equity with a, a, a firm called Onyx, both here in Toronto, North America, and then over in London and the UK for a little while. And then after a brief stint there, a brief stint, a couple of years at, at Onyx, I left and joined up with a couple of partners, Ashbridge Partners, and we acquired Geraldine. And that's where the whole story ends up starting. And it was a few exciting years there. Yeah, can you explain a little bit of what Geraldine does or what it did when you acquired it initially? Yeah, Geraldine is an industrial, was an industrial safety products company. What we focused on, what we were really good at was a very unique winter traction aid, industrial winter traction aid. So the, the main product was called the K1 midsole ice cleat. And if you can think about a, a hiking crampon or you think about a cleat with rubber and then there's studs on the bottom that help dig into the ice, we took a really unique approach to it. So instead of having to sit down and strap this thing over your boot and pull it and stretch it out and it breaks and it falls off, this cleat was a piece of rubber that sat in the middle of the arch of your foot. And on either side of the rubber, there was an elastic strap and it allowed you to pull the cleat over your boot. It sat in the middle of your foot. When you needed traction, you rotated the cleat down underneath the arch of your foot. You didn't feel it because it was in the recessed part of the boot. And then when you went inside, when you got into a vehicle, you were walking on concrete floors or metal floors, you just quickly reached down, flipped the cleat up to the top of your boot, and it was always there when you needed it because you could rotate it down, but it wasn't getting in the way when you were inside and it allowed you to very quickly switch indoor to outdoor. And while that seems very, very simple, it was game-changing in industrial settings and workplace settings. So what were some of the options for cleats or traction on your boots beforehand? So the kind of the story starts with the founders of Geraldine, who I ultimately bought the business from. And when they came into the space, there was two real options. There was the, what we called the full sole cleat. That's the traditional crampon looking thing that people would think of, which is that rubber cleat that you would strap from the toe to the heel of your boot, and it would go underneath your foot and you had studs all along the bottom of your foot. So that was the standard and what an ice cleat was for a very long time. If you go back and look at people, the pictures of people climbing Everest in black and white, they were wearing a form of crampon. It looked like that. From there, there was a company really in Finland who we were ultimately a distributor of their product that developed a heel-based ice cleat. So they're through some research on how the foot strikes the ground when you walk, they developed a cleat that strapped onto the heel of your foot. It was easier on off than the full sole cleat, 
but it was just the heel. So your forefoot was entirely exposed, but the heel strike slip is very, very common. So the next kind of evolution from that full sole cleat was the heel stop. Now today there's a whole bunch of them, but the first real heel stop was a Finnish company called Devasis. And Geraline was the North American distributor for Devasis. The founders of Geraline, as they were selling the Devasis product in North America, started to talk to distributors and talk to safety professionals and people that use the product. And what kept coming up was the issue of how do I go indoor to outdoor without having to sit down to take the cleats off? And furthermore, if I walk on polished concrete or tile inside, ice cleats actually become like skates. It's like a skating rink because you've got metal on polished concrete. And so that's actually a hazard in itself. So what can we do to make it easier to transition indoor to outdoor? And that's where the founders of Geraline developed the concept of the midsole ice cleat. And that ultimately became you know, the gold standard of what to use on a job site. And so when did they start the business? The founders of Geraline started the business in 2011. That's when they started to import the heel-based ice cleats from Finland. And by 2014, that's when they came out with the midsole. And in the period of time of 2014 to when I bought the business with my partners in February of 19, they'd completely, they probably had north of 60% of the Canadian market and were just scratching the surface of the US market. What did you find attractive about the business when you first looked at it? There's a number of factors. I think one, first off, the product worked. We knew that it was the industry leading product. We could try it for ourselves and we could tell that the product worked and it, it did what it said it was supposed to do. That was the first thing. The second thing is when we bought it, it was growing at, call it 60% a year. And there was real, no pun intended, traction in the marketplace. What we were finding was that big end user companies, let's throw out a couple examples. Suncor was probably the biggest one. They were mandating that the cleats had to be worn by anybody on site between September and April. Let's call it the winter season up here in the Great White North in Canada. We could see that this product was being not only chosen, but then mandated into safety policy. So combine that with how quickly it was growing and, and that it worked. The founders of the business were tremendous people, and I maintain a great relationship with them today. So we felt like we could trust the people we're buying the business from. And then at the end of the day, it was a high margin product that we felt that if we could put the right systems and infrastructure in place, that we could probably accelerate sales growth even further. And that thesis ended up playing out. So is this the only product that they sold or was there other kind of ancillary products on top of it and maybe some service element that made up like another minority chunk of their revenue or was it entirely just the K1? So we had it, if you listed them all out on a piece of paper, it's probably about 25 SKUs. We had the heel-based ice cleats and then we had three different profiles of the cleats. So there's not every boot is the same. 60% of work boots have a similar type arch, just your standard steel-toed, seven, eight-inch ankle work boot. So 60% of our cleats were of that original profile. But then we had a low profile, a high profile, and then by the end, through my fantastic team and myself, we developed a slim cleat for uh, flat-soled shoes. So we had an array of different cleats for different types of work, different applications, different settings but they were all based on that midsole concept. The one other thing that we had, which was very unique, was we were certified intrinsically safe. And basically what that means in layman's terms is, think about being on, a, on an Exxon site. And if you're walking and you shuffle your foot at such a force that you can create a spark, 
Well, in volatile environments where there's hazardous vapors, gas, dust, oil, you don't want risk of sparking. And so we were certified against that. And that was a huge differentiator in the market. So we had SKUs, that technology built in. But for all intents and purposes, it was all designed around that midsole concept. That's fascinating. And so when you bought the business, what kinds of opportunity did you start to see within the first three, six, nine months within the business? What were they taking advantage of and doing really well? And then what did you see? What were some areas of improvement you started to notice? When we were learning about the business, there was a number of different things that we could immediately point to. From a sales perspective, the business had such high margins that we knew we could give out a lot of samples. And that when you put the product in someone's hands and they could see how it actually worked, put it on their feet, typically we ended up converting that opportunity. It was that powerful of a product to demonstrate. And at the time we bought the business, the sellers were attending, call it 15, 16 trade shows a year. And we upped that to 50. We went to every safety trade show across North America that I can think of. We started going to industry vertical shows like forestry shows, mining shows. And our goal every time we went to those shows was simply to show people the product, show them how it worked, and then put a sample in there. So that then they could take it back, try it themselves, show it to their safety committees. And what that typically led to is one safety professional you spoke to a show would then mandate it for their hundred workers on a site. And that had a lot of leverage. And so what we, we would collect, we'd probably hand out anywhere from 250 to 400 samples at a show. We'd collect all of those leads. Eventually, this led to going into our automated marketing system. And we would just follow up until we either got feedback or somebody said it wasn't working for me. But we went to those shows. That was the first thing that we could see. From a margin perspective, the sellers in the business, again, great friends. They were not doing a great job forecasting inventory. And I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, they saw the business not only as a business that they were scaling and growing, but they also saw it as a way of funding their day-to-day lives. And so... The decision of cash wasn't between paying down debt or acquiring a business or ordering more inventory. It was, do I take cash out for my family, for my life versus order more? So they were doing a different equation than we were as financial buyers. And so every time they ordered inventory, it hurt them in their own personal pockets. And so we just took a much more aggressive approach to forecasting inventory. The guys that owned the business before us were air freighting a lot of inventory. Air freight's six times the cost of sea freight. So if you could, was back then at least, it's a little different now. So if you could accurately, more accurately forecast your inventory requirements, you'd save a lot from an EBITDA perspective. And so we did that right away. And then I think the last thing that I could say that right away was the guys again were fantastic, but, but we're not in the business day to day. And I think the team really just needed some guidance and somebody to pat them on the back, someone to say, Hey, how about this? How about you do that? Great job. That's an awesome sale. Very simple, common sense, human elements, I think we're missing from the team. And on top of that, just the infrastructure and resources for them to do their job day to day, whether it was the right computer equipment, the right software, everything to allow them to excel in the job we asked them to do. And once we put that in place and we gave them a pat on the back, that's when the business really took off. Yeah, it sounds like you would have heard a lot of feedback from employees in your team on what was working, what wasn't working. How much of those comments can you share in terms of what they were telling you? We certainly heard a lot of feedback. And in fact, people that have been down this path before, we actually had the luxury of meeting the team before in a little bit of a, we went in as consultants was our cover story. And so I got to chat with the team before I got in there and learn from them before what might've been lacking from a systems perspective. The team 
was collecting 300 leads at a trade show, but there was no CRM that was functioning. Things just got dumped into this abyss of a CRM and never found again. So there were leads that were sitting there waiting to be taken advantage of that never got accessed and never converted. And so I could see that happening. And I could see that the team really needed somebody to provide more guidance. And I can tell you that there's only so many times a customer can call up and you have to say, I'm sorry, we're out of stock. It's backordered till X. And then say it's backordered till X plus Y. That was taxing on the group. And they're you mean tasked with growing this business that has no inventory. And so when I saw that happening before we bought the business, I was able to translate that feedback into actionable items pretty quick. What do you tell your team when you don't have inventory, but you're still trying to encourage them to make sales or find new, new clients and customers and all that? That's immediately what I tried to solve for never having to do again. We were fortunate in that our product was very unique and the brand well-respected. From a quality and efficacy perspective, we led the market. So there wasn't really, when you were out of stock, they would turn to a competitor and you lost the sale. When I came into the business, it wasn't uncommon for some of our customers to wait two months to get their product. And so what do you tell the team? You keep going, try to maintain the relationship, let them know what the timeline is. Let's be honest, let's be transparent. And how the customers reacted to that varied quite a bit. And I really have to hand it to the people that I had on my team to manage us through those relationships because obviously we got through. And then everything's relative. When when the customers then realize that us as new management were going to be much more aggressive with inventory, that they never experienced the stock out again, the relationship grew nicely from there because there was obviously that relative comparison. Yeah, especially when I imagine with members of your team who are compensated on making a sale, if they know that there's always going to be inventory, that's probably pretty impactful for them too. And and I'll take you back one further step, actually. When I came into the business, no one on the team was incented. Oh, really? On a commission basis. There was no structure that paid people the more that they sold. It was all discretionary. And it's, it's not like they were not treated fairly at the end of the day, but there was no structure. And one of the things that I learned through this process, and, and I can tell you some more stories about our Quebec sales agent, for example, is a perfect example of this. If you don't know which direction to run, you just stand there. And with a little bit of guidance, the proper incentive structure, and I spent more time during this process thinking through incentive structure, that when I put some of that in place, that allowed the team to do their job. And you, so you're right. What kind of shows the passion of the group that I had was that they were fighting day to day to grow the business without any incentive that was on paper in front of them, which speaks volumes of their character. Yeah, I definitely want to hear more about the incentives part. I, before getting to that point, though, I'd love to hear more about how you managed to build up inventory more quickly. So you mentioned that they were air freighting a lot of inventory. Did you just place huge orders for sea freight, but then maintain air freight in the meantime and bump that up even more? So what did you do to get inventory back into the business? When I came in, the guys were keep saying the guys, the guys are the, the owners, that's how I always referred to them. They were just ordering ad hoc. So they would come into the office a couple of days a month and they'd come in on a Thursday and on the 20th of the month and take a look at the warehouse and go, oh no, we're in trouble. It's November. What are we going to do? And so then they would rush order from our manufacturer who was in Asia and then be left with absolutely no choice but to air freight product in. And so all we did was leverage the data that already existed in the business 
to put some sensible forecast in place. And then when I, I bought the business in February, so the season was primarily, call it September, mid-February, and then winter falls off. And so the business seasonally fell off a little bit. And so by February 15th, when we closed, the season was starting to tail off. There's a little bit left. So pretty quickly, I turned around and I looked at the numbers and said, okay, here's what we did last year. Here's what we're forecasting for growth next year. Here's how I expect intrinsic to grow because we're going to spend more time marketing this beautiful non-Spark product. And then I went to this flyer and said, we're going to go from, I think it was four containers of product the previous year to eight containers. And here's the forecast that you're going to receive. And I'm, I'm going to confirm the first five for you now. It's coming and confirmed. Good to go. You can issue POs. And I'll confirm the last three as I go because I want to learn the mix a little bit as I see my first season here. And obviously that caught the manufacturer's eye to see that much growth. And that was the beginning of what's a great relationship with that manufacturer I still have. But it, it was just simply looking at the data going, if we're going to do this, we're going to make sure that we've got proper inventory. The margins are so high that the cost of a stock out is massive. The CAD business is incredibly cash generative. So let's make sure that we don't miss a sale because we don't have product. And that was the, the mantra the entire time we were there. And then to your point, we doubled the inventory, but we just never put product on a plane. I think maybe I did it once because of a surprise order for a SKU that I never expected to, to take off. But other than that, we cut out most of the air freight that was happening before. How do you project which products are going to sell to what degree? Because I imagine if you got a lot more energy or more dangerous environment type clients, they might want more of that, the, the cleat that prevents sparking and that sort of thing. But that could all be depending on how, how well your marketing does, your trade shows do. How do you project all of those different SKUs? We were just pretty aggressive on how we thought we could grow the business. And you take a step back and think about what the type of product it was. Because not every business can approach it like this. The product did not spoil. The rubber didn't dry out. There was no spoilage or damage to the product. We had a you know, really nice warehouse setup, so I wasn't worried about damage from dust or anything like that. The product wasn't going to change to the extent that the, anything that was on the shelf would become obsolete. Worst case scenario, we do a little bit of a change in packaging, but this is an industrial environment, so the packaging is slightly different. You know, it wasn't going to ch- change anything. So we knew that if we didn't sell the product this season, we were going to sell it next season. And yes, we had a little bit of cash sitting in our warehouse if that was the case, but it was better to have that than it was to not have the product. So we were unique in that sense. Not everybody, if you have a perishable product, if you've got a product that doesn't have 70% gross margins, it's tougher to do what we did. But for us, that was a way better use of our cash than having it sit on our balance sheet. And so the forecasting then, I had done my time in private equity. I knew my way around Excel. I was able to take the data and cut it up and figure out a forecasting methodology where I knew where my, my budget amount was. I built a buffer on top of that. And then there was a percentage of my forecasted year that I always wanted to have on hand at any given time. And then as we would confirm containers, I'd make sure that those percentages and balances stayed in place based on growth forecasts from the previous year. And it was really just block and tackle forecasting. We didn't have an inventory system that you know had an algorithm that managed it for us or anything like that. It was just simply uh, kind of second, third year business, undergrad business school on how to, uh, to forecast cash flow. Do you have any more systems today that track that in a more automated fashion? 
the business never got to the point where we had an inventory system that was forecasting inventory for us. We had, by the time we were done, we were using we used a software called Unleashed. And it, it did a really good job of tracking our inventory. We had, as we added warehouses into the US and set up over in, the, in Europe, they did a good job helping us manage where all of our stuff was, but it never got to the point where we were using it as a forecasting tool or it was alerting us to low inventory levels or anything like that. I watched inventory really closely because at the end of the day, it was the lifeblood of that business. Can we go back to those incentives that you said you spent a ton of time thinking about? Because you mentioned there was no incentives at all in the business Mm -hmm. on incremental sales. Can you explain a little bit about what you thought through, what you looked at, first of all, with existing incentives, if there were any, and then diving into a little bit more of how you thought about constructing incentives that worked? Yeah. So when I got there, it was just simply everybody expected Christmas bonus is, is really what it, what it was, or holiday bonus. And that obviously I, I had a, a salesperson there and, and we can talk about, go into this, but she'd basically been, she was the heart and soul of, of that business and had built it from call it a couple million of revenue and grown her personal piece of that four or five times. And so very impressive. And she did that without any type of incentive on how to grow or on what she would earn if she grew the business to X. And very early on, she said, I just want my pay to go up when the sales go up. And I was like, I, I can manage that for you. Like we can figure out how to do that. And so I basically set out a target where I wanted performance against the previous year. And this business was growing 60% a year. So it wasn't hard for us to forecast that we could get at least to where we were the prior year. And then I would set a sales target that I expected us to get to. And then I would have a bonus that started paying out at about 50% of the sales target. So if you didn't hit sales target, you still made money because we would have advanced the business forward. Plus our sales targets were quite aggressive. We're growing the business 60% a year. At some point that slows down. So I generally about 50% of target, it would start to kick in and then it generally scaled linearly. And then I have a kicker up top. That was for you know my salespeople that I was working with kind of regular basis on the ground. I didn't have a ton, but that was the structure. As I went through the team, it didn't necessarily make sense to incent everyone on just sales. I had members of my team, we were small. It was a very small team. I needed to incent people not only to just be focused on bringing in orders, but to build the infrastructure of the business. I also then evolved into kind of the next series of incentive programs I set up were not just sales focused. They were 50% 50% what I called management objectives and 50% sales focused. And I'd say the management objectives were not impossible. They were just, these would be very good developments for our business. And it, whether it was getting stocked with Fastenal, just an example. So we didn't have to do onesie, twosie orders for Fastenal. We were in their DC. If we could get stocked with Fastenal, that paid out a great bonus. And that, it wasn't getting an order that led to that. It was working the people at Fastenal so they understood the product, so they understood the end market opportunity, but that took a lot of work. And so I wanted to add people on that. And so that was the next evolution. And then there was a period of time where I tried to hire somebody in the United States who had come from a very large company. He was highly compensated. It was going to make, call it over 200,000 US a year. Um, And we were not a massive company. So that was a reasonably expensive employee. And that took a lot of thinking through incentives on what do I need this person to do to meaningfully change my US business? How do I compensate somebody that's come from a much larger corporate environment that's used to perks and pay for performance that I could never reach and still entice them to be part of our organization. And that was a quite challenging exercise and we got there in the end. But yeah, that's my journey through incentives. Yeah, that sounds like the challenge of a lot of 
business owners when they think through hiring really talented people that have done successful things elsewhere, but they don't have the same amount of money or resources to incent those people to come work for them. I was very upfront when I said, everyone here realizes we're building something special. This is a unique environment. It's a collegial group. Everybody chips in. Job titles didn't really matter because things needed to get done and people just got them done. And, and that's my view on what the mark of a good team is. People do what needs to get done, even if it's not written on their job description. And so I often said that to people I was looking to bring into the, into the business that you're, you'll probably take a pay cut from your role, but I guarantee you we're building something special here. Everybody's bought into that. Everybody's taking a pay cut from their true value, myself included. But what we're building is really exciting. And the long run opportunity here of what this business could become, this is an opportunity to be part of that now and the sky's the limit. And some version of that generally was accepted by people that I spoke with. And if they didn't accept that version, typically they weren't really the right person for our business. And so that's how I approached incentives and getting people to buy into what we were working on and the culture of the team and everybody's motivation to be part of what we were doing day to day was very, very important to me. You must have made a ton of hires during this whole process. What kinds of questions did you ask and what characteristics did you look for in people that you brought onto the team? So I think there was always an element of the beginning of experience. Do you have experience in the field? My controller is a fantastic example. He was uh, the controller at Cisco Foods in Canada for 15 or so years. Very experienced. So that checked the box pretty quickly. But then questions that I asked really go back to kind of why do you want to leave your role that you're at now and end up here, which is a small, scrappy, energetic group that's everybody does more than they're supposed to do. What makes you want to be part of that? And the answers to that really mattered. Obviously, there was a little bit as well of just who do you know, because relationships went a long way in the safety business. What end users are you exposed to? What distributors are you exposed to? What have you seen in the market? Do you even know what our product does? And so those were, we'll call them table stakes questions. But for me at the end of the day, and I'll probably sound like a broken record by the time we're done, the culture and the energy of the team every single day, I knew what I was looking for when I sat down and talked to people. Just the way they comported themselves, their tone, their kind of just general, I don't know if I have a better way to put it than vibe. And that was really important because our team vibed together so well. So and I think it, then it goes back to the processes that we we put in place and the systems we put in place. So when it first came into the business and we didn't have a, a CRM, it was just an abyss. I went through a whole bunch of different CRM softwares, tried to understand what would integrate with our inventory management and accounting and whatnot. And I ended up after going to number struggles, landed on Salesforce. And so Salesforce is interesting in that you sign up with Salesforce and then you get a implementation consultant who's a third party that comes in and helps you set up your system. And so I got a, a very high quality, top-notch implementation consultant. So we talked about in terms of growth. So far, we talked about sales incentives, keeping inventory in stock, and just going to trade shows and getting yourself out there more. What other types of things did you do to cause all this growth? So and I think it, then it goes back to the processes that we, we put in place and the systems we put in place. So we first came into the business and we didn't have a CRM. It was just an abyss. I went through a whole bunch of different CRM softwares, tried to understand what would integrate with our inventory management and accounting and whatnot. And I ended up, after going a number of struggles, landed on Salesforce. And so Salesforce is interesting in that you sign up with Salesforce and then you get a implementation consultant who's a third party that comes in and helps you set up your system. And so I got a a very high quality, top-notch implementation consultant. 
And so we, we then took our process of how we collected leads at a trade show or collected leads that came in when we were asking people, what type of work do you do? What type of environment are you working in? What kind of footwear do you wear? Recommend the sample, have them test the sample. And then it was a matter of staying in touch with them and getting their feedback on the product was always where we landed. And ultimately, we're either hearing that it didn't fit for them or we're helping them find a distributor. But as you can imagine, that's a lot of different touch points. And while they were all included in our Salesforce database, we were meeting 400 people at a trade show and we're going to 55 of them. This was a lot for one person on our end user sales team to handle. And so we had to find a way that was efficient to stay in touch with all these people. After about six, seven months of this Salesforce being in place, our path looking fantastic, but not be able to handle all the leads, we put in Pardot, which is Salesforce's automated marketing software. And there's a whole bunch of them out there, but you know, Pardot was, is Salesforce's product, so it was an easy fit. And what we were able to do from there is the three to 400 leads that we were talking to from every show or from coming in through the website, all of a sudden we were able to stay with them, in touch with them on, an, on a regular basis. And we nothing fell through the cracks. And just staying in touch with these people and getting their feedback and following up when we've handed out a sample, that sample didn't go to waste. That really helped us move to the next level. And then we took it even further and we tried to be proactive about it. So in Canada, we know that it's going to snow every single year and there's going to be snow across the pretty much the whole country minus, you know, dead in BC and that everybody has issues with snow and ice. And as a result, Canadians are very proactive in how they order ice cleats. They'll order ice cleats in August, July, September, because they know it's going to snow. In the US, we had to do a little bit more education on what you do when there is snow, because not the entire country has the same weather patterns, obviously. And the culture around safety and on ice and snow and slips and falls wasn't as developed as was Canada. So we said, can we be proactive instead of having to call people and when we saw it was snowing in their area, let's automate this with Zapier had an API that pulled weather from the weather channel database. And then you were in our system. And if you were somebody that told us that you hadn't bought the product yet, but you were interested and you hadn't received a marketing email from us in two weeks, and it was going to snow more than I'll say it in Canadian in five centimeters in your postal code in the next five days, then you got a marketing email that said, hey, it's going to snow in your area. Have you thought about ice cleats for your team? And that proactive approach to staying in touch with people that would otherwise have been quite reactive. And the problem with when you're reactive with weather, especially in the United States, is it snows and then it melts. And now you don't think you have an ice cleat problem anymore. And so if we were to get in front of you and say, it's going to snow, you should think about this. That was an effective strategy to getting in front of people in the United States. And Pardot cost a fifth of what another person would have cost us to be in that in, inside sales role. And so the way I always looked at it is I added an inside salesperson for 20% of what a sales person should cost. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Did you add, did you eventually add other salespeople just naturally through increased volume or did that handle a substantial amount of increased capacity, maybe more than you even realized? It handled an incredible amount of capacity. And I tell you this whole story, but I don't think our, our employee count ever got above 10. So we did an incredible volume with 10 people. And so we were able to leverage the systems that we had, whether it was Pardot or Salesforce or you know, cloud inventory software, whatever it was, to do a lot with a few people. I mean, it's kind of informed my view on what it means to have 
success story. And I often hear stories, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I often hear stories about people judging success by the number of employees or the number of offices or how much capital has been raised. And what I saw at Geraldine was you can be incredibly successful with a very lean structure. And a lot of the headaches that come with being larger, with having more capital, with having more employees can be eliminated and resolved. You can really just focus on the important things. And people, as long as you've got the right team that's willing to do more than their job description, then you can accomplish a lot. And that was kind of the whole, at the end of the day, that was the story behind Geraldine. And so what were the results from the time you acquired the business until selling it fairly soon after? We owned it for about 16 months, which sounds incredibly short. And as I've listened to your podcast, there's many people that will say, barely know where the bathroom is by then. And I think that's true. It was an absolute whirlwind. And we were able to double EBITDA in around a year. I mean, the, the remaining four months being what it took to run a process and sell the business. So in about a year, we were able to double EBITDA. Look, like we paid a, a very reasonable small business multiple when we bought it, called around five times. And we ended up selling it for, for around nine times. And so that multiple expansion and plus doubling EBITDA with a little bit of debt pay down in the middle led to a really successful outcome. And was this a opportunity to sell that you just felt you couldn't pass up? Or is it, was this a business you wanted to hold for longer? That's where, you know, it becomes a really interesting discussion on, on around selling and, and where I was in my life at the time as well. So I've told everybody that was part of the process, but I, if I had my choice, I would still own Geraldine. And I think we had a lot of runway. There was reason to believe, and we were bringing in other products, particularly at the height of the pandemic, that we had the opportunity to be a platform safety products company that wasn't just a single SKU or single product category uh, that we could have expanded, used, leveraged our relationships, leveraged our you know, very strong reputation, expanded in other product categories, continued with our European expansion, and led to a really successful outcome. And actually, funny enough, look a lot like a smaller version of the company that ultimately bought us SureWorks. So I think there, were, there was runway for that. Even though the other side of the coin is what I was told by my investors was don't forget what we got in this for. We got in this for a good financial outcome. This is a deal that is, we've had some fantastic earnings growth. The way the market is treating safety businesses right now is very much in our favor. Then they would turn to me and say, look, Ryan, like you're, you're a pretty young guy. This will be a, a great print for your track record. You don't know what it means to have a financial outcome like this, what it can mean for your life and the flexibility it gives you going forward. And so, yes, you're myopically focused on Geraldine right now and you think that everything is possible with this business, and I still do. But don't forget what we got into this for and what it can mean for you. And that's ultimately what led us to the sale and, and the debate back and forth, how I feel about it depends on the day. But at the end, it didn't you know, great outcome for myself and for everybody invested. Gotcha. So having been on the other side of the table buying this business, what was it like trying to sell it while simultaneously actually running the business actively? Uh, a lot of work. It's the easy way to put it. The good thing for me, and I don't know if everybody has this experience, is I'd been on the other side of the table in private equity. We were bought by a private equity firm called the Riverside Company and their portfolio company, SureWorks. Thankfully, the guys at Riverside were, were tremendous. But I knew what to expect. I knew what the diligence sheets were going to look like, what the request list would look like. And we had a series of calls. So I'd go from being on the phone with customers and working with the team to grow the business. We, in the height of busy season, the business was sold in the middle of October. So our busiest season starts at the beginning of September. So we're in a busiest season. I'm working with the team on very important preseason orders. And then at the same time, I'm on the phone with the CEO of 
the portfolio company, the guys from the private equity firm, the people from the private equity firm, and they're grilling me on the intrinsically safe certification and if it's real. So in, in at the same time, I had the financial background to be able to have full command over our financials as well. So I was on two-hour accounting diligence calls and then 90-minute business diligence calls and then trying to also run the business in our busiest seasons. It was a bit of an adventure. Absolutely. So in the work that you do with your brother now with 3GP Capital, based on your experience with Geraldine, how does that inform what you look for now or some characteristics that you find interesting within businesses that you see? So we'd worked together for a period of about six months under Ashford Partners when I finished up at Geraldine. And then we decided that we would go out on our own and launch 3GP. And so separating from the mold and starting on our own, we were able to reflect on what we were looking for. And, and I'm sure it, to a lot of people in the space, it comes as no surprise that we're seeing a lot of froth. Uh, we're seeing valuations up significantly from where things were when we bought Geraldine. So unless we had an angle or an edge, we weren't going to be the highest bidder in a process. And finding proprietary deals is everybody's dream, but it's not always easy. And we can dial for dollars or have business by side brokers dial for dollars for us, but it's a challenge. And so what we decided might separate us and lead us to places where institutional money that was coming into the lower middle market might not be is let's take what we learned at Geraldine on single skew businesses that probably have more risk associated with them, of course, but valuations will be commensurately lower for the most part. And we feel like we have a bit of a playbook on how to handle single skew businesses after what we'd gone through with Geraldine. Understand often that they don't have the infrastructure that they need in order to really accelerate as a business from where they are. Generally, they've got brilliant founders who are tinkerers and inventors, but haven't put proper systems in place or really know how to build out relationships with customers to take them to the next level. And I'd seen that at Geraldine. And so we've been targeting single skew businesses with minimal infrastructure, with high gross margins, so we can invest heavily in the middle of the income statement into marketing and business process and systems to make it look and feel more like a real business and to hopefully see the top line benefit as a result. And that's what we've been focused on. And we've got a, a deal under LOI right now. It fits that exact mold. And uh, we're really excited about that. So I was explaining this the other day to somebody, we'll go with where the market goes. If we can get back into the space where we're able to buy more fulsome businesses with more infrastructure and systems and that have more of a services component, if valuations in that space become more reasonable at some point, and generally that would probably mean that there's been some sort of downturn and we've been patient enough and have the capital to be able to move into that space again, we'll go there. But right now where we see our advantage is in these single skew businesses that often people don't want to touch or don't know how to operate or consider them to be significantly more risky than they're willing to take on. And it's working right now. So you saw a bunch of the advantages from being a single SKU business where the product doesn't change very much. You could have it in inventory for a while. What are some disadvantages, though, of having just one or even a small handful of SKUs? So I would say that single SKU becomes incredibly risky when you're not only single, like you have SKU concentration, but then also customer concentration. Geraldine had both. So I figured out how to manage through that for the most part. I would say that's the, the biggest risk is if you're concentrated within a specific customer or two, and then you're also a single SKU, that's where I see things that are very risky. What we often look for is businesses that have already a proven product market fit 
that we're not trying to necessarily convince people that it's the right option. We just have to make people aware that it's there. And that's what it was at Geraldine because the product was so clearly had features and benefits that were leaps and bounds ahead of the incumbent. We'll call it the full soul cleat. So we're looking for similar situations to that. And if we're able to find those, then a lot of the risk around, will you be unseated by a competitor who has a brand or product that is infinitely better, then we've, we've brought that, da- that risk down a little bit. The other thing that we look for is we really aren't in trying to find businesses that are, we call it retail single skew. We like to have some component like the mandates that you know, the end users were putting in their safety policies at Geraldine, where there's a credible, reputable stakeholder that suggests that this is the best product in the market or the best product for the end user. And then we're not fighting on Amazon for buy boxes and whatnot. We're recommended by somebody that has an expertise in the space. And what we found is that ultimately leads to higher margins and we think builds a little bit more moat around what would otherwise be a somewhat risky business. And so how we've looked to mitigate it, whether it's customer concentration being minimal or having some sort of mandate or expert recommendation, and then already being a market leader in whatever the niche or product category is. At Geraldine, did you ever see competitors start to try to try to attack that moat of just the quality of product being flat out better than others? Did you see competitors try to emulate it or do something similar to Geraldine's products? This is where it becomes inevitable that you will have competition. It's a simple economic law that if there are outsized profits to generate it, that somebody will else will find them. And we certainly had competitors from day one there was a competing brand called Impacto and they made a cleat that was very similar to ours and and it looked similar to ours but it certainly did not perform to the same level and so I had my own chats and cease and desist letters we had had Impacto that had come in and then we had Sureworks who owned a brand called Due North and they ultimately made a midsole ice cleat and so we started to see some competition Sureworks cleat infringed on, on our intellectual property so if they hadn't bought us, then we would have gone down a legal path together uh, and it's explored that. But at the end of the day, yes, there was competition. In, at Geraldine, what I learned was having competition with a single SKU is really scary when you have that customer concentration. And where overnight, somebody that's bigger than you can, with a better relationship with Grager or Fastenal than you, can come in and literally... They call it a lift where they'll buy all of your inventory from the distributor, dispose of it and replace it with their own product. And that can happen and did happen to us in certain places. And so what I found is that can be mitigated through minimizing customer concentration. We definitely were seeing it coming in at Geraldine. At the end of the day, our product was still the best performing. We had the best brand and brand recognition. And quite frankly, when larger companies came into our space, we were just moving faster than them. We were outflanking them, whether it was on marketing, whether it was getting into the field, going to trade shows, handing out samples. We were using cloud software, not DOS software. We were just moving faster than people. And I still think we could have outflanked the competition, but we certainly would have had a bump or two along the road. Gotcha. What other types of bumps along the road did you encounter running Jairline? It was on the human side. I had to fire an employee who was who had just recovered from cancer. I had an employee pass away. People on my team had family issues and health problems and 
you know, just there was the human side of it was most generated the most of bumps in the road. And because we were such a small team, every bump felt like a big thud. It took a little bit of thinking to get through each of those. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? It's that's this is like such a hard question. If I could teach a college class, if I could teach people that it come that, and maybe this isn't an adaptation on the question. The way people end up being educated when they leave school and they enter into the kind of like finance industry that I'm in, they come out with a specific view of the world and they come out with uh, not really being able to necessarily relate to somebody that's built a business from scratch. And it takes, there's an adjustment period of what matters to that person relative to what you think matters from the world of large cap private equity that you've come from or whatever that might be. And if I could teach a class, it would be on that, on how to get somebody to get away from what the institutionalized world of finance teaches that is a successful person to what it takes to be able to relate to somebody enough to get them to sell the business that they built that is their baby and to shift from how much capital you've raised to how you're going to protect their legacy and how you're investing your life savings in that business. That's going to win an owner's heart 20 times over compared to this is how much capital I've raised. It's not a class I would teach at school, but it's the class that people keep asking me to teach as I talk to searchers and lower middle market people. It's the single most important thing I talk about right now. No, that's a great answer. Health belief you've changed your mind on. I think I've cheated a little bit because I think the strong health belief I've changed my mind on is that when I talked before, I've always thought as I came out of, as I went through the world of this undergrad business and finance and private equity, that I wanted to build something that at some point would be an institution. We'd have capital and big capital raises and we would invest in different asset classes and, and they would be people. And I think what I've learned from Geraldine is that flexibility in what you're doing and being able to adjust to the circumstances and not being hemmed in on any one specific, we'll call it even the fundraising treadmill. For myself, and everybody's going to approach this differently, for myself, that flexibility has become more valuable than pretty much anything else, whether it's when making investment decisions, what it means for my personal life, that flexibility is key. And so it's that view that I had when I came out of my fourth year of undergrad, senior year, I think you guys call it. That view has changed. That's fantastic. That's a great one. What's the best business you've ever seen? And it can't be Geraldine. No, I, I've thought about this one a lot. Um, so in my final days at, at Onyx, we looked at a business that was, it was a vertical SaaS business. And I don't do a lot of software now. I, I helped get Onyx's uh, software vertical off the ground. And I think they've done two or three deals in the space now. It was a vertical SaaS business that made time and attended software for, for schools and for school boards. And the beauty of that business was that once it was in, you basically, you were literally never removed once you got in. The sales pitch wasn't particularly challenging because the alternative to this software was pen and paper. And generally these schools were moving from having minimal infrastructure technologically to having some type of, whether it was vertical or horizontal human capital management built in. And the U.S. government, which was the big one, had title funds set aside for schools to be able to put these systems in place. 
And so we were, we were, this business was a point solution that managed time and attendance for schools. They also had a number of other point solutions within the, the whole school's capital stack. But you, every single year, got five to 10% price increases. When you won new business, you weren't winning from a competitor, you were winning from pen and paper. And that created an absolute flywheel for that business. And it's till this day, I don't know if I've seen a more profitable or easier to sell business or stickier business than time and attendance in schools and school boards. That's incredible. How did the software actually work? Did it track the phones of students? If they were in the building at that time that checked off, it checked them off for a class or what else did it do? Or like, well, how did it work? And it was actually more for the teachers, whether the teachers showed up at school, how many vacation days the teachers had, oh, did they show teacher. up? And then it also had the ability to, if a teacher, instead of a teacher calling in to the, we'll call it the secretary, I don't know what the word is these days. And the secretary then having to say, oh no, we need to find a sub. The teacher could then say, I'm not coming in through the app or whatever it was, it would automatically call into the subs, find a sub to come into the school, which is really important. That was a huge time suck for the schools and the school boards that this completely automated. And then again, like you consider how much, how that would have been just a pen and paper exercise. It was a fairly easy sell. The, the cost of that product as a percentage of the school's total spend was that every single year took five to 10% price. And it was just you know, a beautiful business. That's a fantastic business. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love that. Thanks so much, Ryan, for coming on the podcast. This has been really, really fun to chat about Geraldine and all the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for sharing some time, especially getting more of the Canadian perspective. It's not the perspective we've heard from nearly as much. So excited to hear about that too. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure and I appreciate it. Good luck. Could you build out your podcast as well in your media empire? Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.